Good evening. Glad you joined us here for our Monday, Thursday service at Harvest Church. My name is Steve Winstead, and I'm one of the pastors here. Now, I suspect many of you come from traditions where you may not be familiar with Monday, Thursday. That word Monday is Latin for the word command. And what that is meaning, it's referring to the command that Jesus gave his disciples in the upper room. In John 13, 35, he says, A new command I give you, that you are to love one another as I have loved you. And it's called Monday, Thursday, because obviously it takes place on Thursday. And we're here Thursday about the time of day when the events of the upper room would have started. And that's what Monday's Thursday's focus is. It's focused on the events of the upper room, in particular, the events of the upper uh, room that occurred on Thursday night. And the disciples would have gathered around dusk to begin to celebrate that. Well, I want to take us in and try to let us get a, a sense of the sights and the sounds and, and a feel for what was going on there that night. And in particular, look at one aspect of what was happening. So we're going to turn in our Bibles. If you've got your Bible, we're going to be in Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. And we'll start reading around verse 7. We're going to jump around just a little bit in Luke chapter 22. So I'll have the passages on the screen if you should wonder where we are at any point. Luke 22, 7 reads, Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. Now we commonly refer to this as the Last Supper. But this was actually a Passover meal. And Jesus, being a Jew, would have been a faithful Jew. And there are seven biblical holidays in the Old Testament that a faithful Jew would celebrate, one of them being a Passover. All seven of the biblical holidays that we see laid out point us to Jesus and some aspect of Jesus' ministry. Passover points most clearly to Jesus. And it most clearly points to his death as the sacrificial lamb of God. It's the oldest of the biblical feast, and it remembers the events of the Exodus, when Moses led the people out of slavery in Egypt. Now, some of you may have done a Passover Seder. You may have seen that. A Passover Seder is where you gather to walk through the meal. And a Seder, uh, that word simply means order. And essentially for the past 3,500 years, the order of the Passover meals remained the same. And we can tell that the order of the Passover meal was the same as it is today in Jesus' day. So I want to look at a, a few aspects of it. Typically to do a real Passover meal, like Jesus would have done, would have taken a minimum of four hours. So it was quite a long meal. Uh, we've got a lot of kids here, and, and we're going to be here in an hour or less, so we're not going to walk through all those. But I'm going to look at one element tonight of that meal, and that is the cup. There are several elements we could cover, but tonight I want us to focus in on the idea of the cup, and we're going to look at that. Now, skipping on down to verse 14. Still in Luke 22, it says, When the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. 
For I tell you, I will not eat it again until the kingdom of God. Jesus has been anticipating this night when he would eat the Passover meal. Jerusalem, a city typically of about 200,000 people, has swelled to 2 million people as Jews from all over the world have come to celebrate Passover. And Jesus, the very fulfillment of Passover, where all the Jews there would see and hear stories about Jesus, the Messiah, who died on a cross. Well, when they came to the Passover meal, they would, in verse 17 and 18, it says, He took a cup, and he had given thanks, and he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on you will not, I will not drink the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So he says, hey, I'm going to take a cup. And I'm not going to drink from this cup again until the kingdom of God comes. This is his last meal before he'll head to the cross. Now in Exodus, we get how these cups were to lay out. In Exodus chapter 6, I think it will be on the screen for you. In Exodus chapter 6, verse 6, it says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Now at a Passover Seder, today, as it always has been, they always have four cups that everyone will drink from. Four cups that everyone will drink from at this meal. The first cup, they would say this, I will bring you out. And it's the cup of thanksgiving. Now, did you just catch what Jesus said there in verse 17? Uh, He said, verse um, 17, he says, He took the cup, and after he had given thanks. Which cup is Jesus sharing here? The cup of thanksgiving. And he would have said, go back to Exodus He would have said, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. It's a reminder, God will bring us out from the burdens of this world. Egypt always represented the world in Scripture. And then he'd say, and I will deliver you from the slavery to them. They would take the second cup later. And the second cup was the cup of deliverance. And they'd remember, God will deliver us from sin. And he would say, I will deliver you. Now between the second and third cup, they would tell the Exodus story. And the Exodus story, as they told it, it would, it would start with the Israelites. They're in Egypt. They're in bondage and in slavery. And God sends Moses and ten plagues in order to set them free. And the tenth plague is the plague of the death of the firstborn. Scripture always makes a big emphasis about the firstborn. Jesus, God's son. You see that throughout scripture. And they're going to kill the firstborn. The angel of death is coming. Unless the Israelites do something very foolish. Seemingly foolish. Unless they take the blood of a lamb without blemish. Kill that lamb. And put the blood on their door. Then God will pass over them. And they will march to freedom from slavery. And the the head of the family would tell this story recounting the exodus and their freedom. And Jesus is right there. He is the fulfillment of the Passover of the Lamb. As they're reflecting back on this. Can you imagine that? They they still somehow miss this, but he's sitting there telling the story. Can you imagine Jesus retelling the story of the exodus? 
Now, then they would drink the third cup next. And they'll say, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And here was this. This third cup is the cup of redemption. I will redeem you, God says. And then later on, they would drink from the fourth cup. In verse 7, it says, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God and will show you. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And this was called the cup of completion. I don't think Jesus drank from that cup because it's not completed. He's coming back. He's going to come back and restore the kingdom. Now look at these other cups. Here he says, I will bring you out from under the burdens of this world. That's still what he says to us today. I will bring you out from, the, from slavery to sin. What he says to us today. And I will redeem you with outstretched arms. Jesus here sharing these cups. Now, in Luke, in the next little section in verse 19, it says, He took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, that's the big idea of the night, to remember. To remember the events of the Exodus. Now he's saying, wait a minute, you remember an Exodus? From now on, you're going to remember me at Passover. You're going to remember me instead of those events. and Because I'm the fulfillment of it. In verse 20, and likewise, he took the cup after he'd eaten, saying, this is the cup poured out for you. Is the new covenant in my blood. This is the third cup, the cup of redemption. He's saying, this is the cup of the new covenant. You are saved by grace, by my blood. It's poured out for you. And they would have taken that cup. And they would have drank from that cup. Now, a few more events happen. You can see there in Scripture some other things happen in the upper room. But then in verse 39, it says, And he came out and went, as was the custom, to the Mount of Olives and his disciples with him. After the events of the upper room, after they've celebrated this Passover meal, Jesus and his disciples leave the city of Jerusalem walk down Mount Moriah where the temple was, they have to cross the Kidron Valley. Now the Kidron Valley is right below the temple, and they had slaughtered tens of thousands of lambs that day. Do you know where that blood drained to? It drained into the Kidron Valley. And here Jesus and his disciples, they have to walk across this bloody valley in order to get to the Mount of Olives. Now they had been staying in Bethany, but tonight they're going to stay on the Mount of Olives. Because if you celebrate Passover in the city, you weren't allowed to go outside city limits to stay the night. You had to stay the night in the city. So Jesus leaves the city walls but doesn't leave city limits and stays on the Mount of Olives. Now I, was, uh, I got back from Israel on Monday morning. I spent last week there. I've, I've been there several times. And I just want to show you something from the Mount of Olives. We got a picture here. This is an olive tree. Uh, there you can see me and Sawyer and Trey standing in front of it so you can get a feel for how big that olive tree is. Those are olive trees that are today on the Mount of Olives. Those olive trees are between 23 and 2,500 years old. They were there when Jesus and his disciples were there. 
Now, an interesting thing about an olive tree, I wasn't going to share this, but as I was preparing, uh, Tony and I met, and we were talking about the service, and I just shared this offhanded with Tony, and Tony's like, you've got to share that. I said, well, I don't know if I have time. He said, well, I'll sing quicker. So <laughs> this next thing's for, for Tony. Interesting thing about an olive tree, their roots grow out beyond their branches, and they have phenomenal roots. But their roots can be healthy, and they can stop bearing fruit. Now, an olive tree in Scripture is a picture of Israel, or often it's a picture of Messiah. When an olive tree will stop producing root and it has good fruits, what, and it, has, it doesn't have good fruit but it has good roots, what they'll do is they'll take a branch from another olive tree, a young olive tree that doesn't have deep roots yet but it's producing fruit, and they'll take that branch and break it off and graft it in to the olive tree that has good roots. You can see a couple branches there that have been grafted into this old tree. Can you see them sticking out? In Romans chapter 11, Paul talks about an olive tree and us being grafted in. That We who are not Jewish, most of us here are Gentiles, we were grafted in to the roots of the Jewish nation. Our roots are Jewish. That's what we stand on. We, we have a, a Jewish Messiah and we've been grafted in. Next picture, you can see um, a tree that uh, they cut down this olive tree and they literally grafted in some good roots to produce fruit. It's a picture of where to produce fruit. Now, we don't often think of olives as being fruit. We don't think of them very much. We don't do much with olives. But in Jesus' day, olives were essential. Now, here's what olives would look like if you uh, want a visual of that. And, yeah, in the next picture. Olives were used for all sorts of things. I mean, they were necessary for daily life. If you were going to cook, you needed olive oil. It was like butter. You had to use it for everything. In your house, how did you light your house? Well, you used olive oil to light your house. Women, if you were going to have cosmetics and take care of your skin, what did you take care of it with? Olives. Men, if you were using something and you need some kind of, something to lubricate it, what would you use? Olive oil. They used olive oil for so many things. It was a vital commodity, and they literally used it as commodity. It was used for burial. It was used for all sorts of things. So everybody in Jesus' day used olive oil. Now, in Matthew's gospel, it tells us something uh, that Luke doesn't share, and I'm going to show this to you. In Matthew 26, 36, it says, And Jesus went to a place called Gethsemane. We typically think of the Garden of Gethsemane. Do you know Scripture doesn't talk about a Garden of Gethsemane? There's no Garden of Gethsemane there. Gethsemane is not a garden. Now, in John, it talks about a garden that's on the Mount of Olives, but a Gethsemane is something different. The word gat, that word means crushing or, or place of pressing. And shenamon means oil. It means the place of crushing oil. Can I show you what a Gethsemane looks like? Here in these pictures, now this isn't a Gethsemane, this is the first step of making olive oil. This is a millstone, and you can see how big it is. There I am, I'm in Bethsaida, the hometown of Peter and Andrew and Philip, there in the Galilee. And in every single town that they've excavated, they find millstones. Those were vital for life, because you had to have olive oil. And most towns only had a few of them, and the wealthy people had them, and they controlled the town because everybody had to come there to crush their, crush their olives and get olive oil. It was vital. You see how you would put the olives in that uh, cylinder, and you would crush it. See that donkey that would walk around the circle crushing it? That was the first step. 
Doesn't that sort of bring new meaning when Jesus says, if any of you causes one of these little ones to stumble, it would be better that a millstone be tied around his neck. Look at that millstone. You're a goner if that thing's tied around your neck and thrown to the sea. Now here, I want to show you the next picture what a Gethsemane is. So the next thing they would do is they would crush it. They would put it in a basket and they would crush it under the crushing weight. That picture in the top right is a, uh, a, a Gethsemane in Tel Hazor in Israel. And they have a crushing weight on that basket crushing out the olive oil. The bottom picture is a rendition of what it would look like. And those are the crushing, those are crushing stones or the weights that were tied to it. And you'd put different weights on it based upon how thoroughly you wanted the olive oil crushed, what it was going to be used for. Okay, you still with me? Okay, here's another picture. This is in Capernaum, Jesus' hometown. This, these, again, these pictures were taken last week, so this is what it's like today. Where Jesus lived, that big white stone right there, that is a crushing stone used in the Gethsemane. It's huge. And Jesus, think about this, Jesus is in, the, they're, they're staying in a Gethsemane. On an olive uh, grove, on the Mount of Olives, where people would crush olives right there. And that's where Jesus is staying with his disciples. He's about to be crushed himself. Josiah read at the opening, he was crushed for our iniquities. He's going to be crushed at this place. Now in Luke 22, going back to Luke 22 and verse 41... 42, it says, and he withdrew from them about a stone's throw away. So he walks out from the Gethsemane and goes at this point probably into the garden. There was a garden right beside it. And he knelt down and prayed and he said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not, your, uh, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus mentions a cup again. A cup that he does not want to drink from. In his flesh, in his humanity, fully God, fully man, he's going, I do not want to drink from that cup. What is that cup? Well, there's another cup that is at a Seder meal that we didn't mention. They drink from four cups, but there's a fifth cup. And that cup comes from Jeremiah. We're going to put that up there. Jeremiah 26, 15. It says, Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. There was a cup of wrath for the nations. A cup of wrath to be poured out on the nations and they thought, who can drink the cup of wrath? And still today at a Seder meal, they'll pour out a cup and set it on the table. And they say, we need a prophet to come tell us Who's going to drink the cup of wrath? So what they do is they say, we'll call this cup Elijah's cup. And midway through a Seder meal, you open the door and you say, we need Elijah to come. I mean, still to this day, if you go to a Jewish Seder meal, they're going to open the door for Elijah to come. Because they want Elijah to come and say, here's who's going to drink the cup of wrath for the nations. John shows up. And the first thing we see out of John's mouth in John chapter 1, verse 29, is he points to Jesus and he goes, Behold, the Lamb of God. Now when he used that phrase, Lamb of God, in every Jewish mind, these were a visual people, you know what they were thinking? Passover Lamb. That's what would come to their mind, Passover Lamb. Going forward, he goes, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold, the Passover lamb who will drink the cup of wrath. He'll take the sins of the nations upon himself. 
He can drink that cup. I wonder if that meal, if Jesus drank that cup. Here he is in the garden. He's reflecting, thinking, I do not want to drink the cup of wrath. Scripture says that he literally became sin. There on the cross. That something happened where darkness covers the earth for three hours is Christ takes the sin of the world, the wrath of the nations. He takes the wrath of God that you deserve. (coughs) Jesus takes the hell that you and I deserve there on the cross. That's what we deserve, and he takes it. There on the cross. And there the night before he's going, that's the cup I don't want to drink. Is there another way in his flesh? He goes, not my will, but yours be done. But is there another way that we can figure out how to do this thing? He had never experienced sin. And there on the cross, he's about to become it. And something, in some way, he's about to experience some separation from the Father. That's why he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there the night in that garden, he's being crushed. Not wanting to drink from the cup, but going to be obedient to the Father. Here's what those olives in a basket look like when they're crushed. It's a messy thing. And Jesus is about to be crushed with the crushing stone, the weight of of the sin of the nations, the weight of the wrath of the nations. The sin of the world is going to come upon him. Now, Tony and some of the band are going to come up here and play. And as this is a service of remembrance, it's a somber service. It's a service of remembrance. Now, we have kids in here, and that makes it more joy-filled. It's a service of reflection and remembrance, what happened that night. And the Greek word for remember means don't have amnesia. Don't forget this. Don't don't forget these events. And and as they play, I'm going to ask, would you remember? Would you just sit there? I'm going to come back up and open the tables later. We're not opening the communion just yet. But would you take time to remember how sin has impacted our world? How sin's impacted our nation? How sin's impacted all of creation? How sin's impacted our city? How sin's impacted your friends and your family? And how sin has impacted you. And thank him for drinking that cup. That cup that you couldn't drink. He drank it down. So just take time to reflect and to give thanks. And then I'll come back up in a moment and lead us in a time of communion. His flesh, our hope is found. What blood runs free, mercy abounds. Life for life, and grace for wrath. God's unforsaken, His love unmatched. The perfect one, the Lamb was slain. Shame and sin. So now we, His chosen bride, I'll count it right, just justified, our life is 
Jerusalem. He's with his disciples, and one of their mothers came up, mother of James and John, and she asked him, she says, hey, can you let one of my boys sit at your right hand, and one of my boys sit at your left hand? And in Matthew chapter 20, in verse 22, he says this. He says, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? 
Are, are you able to drink this, this cup of wrath? And listen to what these boys foolishly say. They said to him, we are able. They don't know what they're talking about. And Jesus looked at them and said, you will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and my left hand is not for me to grant, but for those for whom it has been prepared. When I was in Bethlehem last week, I... Uh, stopped by to see a friend. He, uh, he works at an inn in Bethlehem. It's a hotel his family runs. He's the chef at the inn. And when I was there a, a couple of years ago, I had hung out with Joey and he was telling me that, about this gal that he was interested in. But in their culture, he couldn't just go and ask her out. They had to arrange things. So he was telling me that his father or actually his uncle, the head of his family, was going to go speak to the head of her family and see if they might be able to work something out. Well, when I was there a week ago, I got to meet Joey's bride. So his family had worked out a deal. Now, Joey's a follower of Christ. His family's a follower of Christ, living right there in Bethlehem. And that tradition of arranging this betrothal period, of arranging these things, goes all the way back past the time of Jesus and in Jesus' day, a father would go to another man and say, My boy, can we arrange something for him to marry your girl? And they would negotiate and they would work through this deal. And eventually they would come to a point that they would agree upon a price. And typically that price would be about the cost of a first home in our country. And then the father would go and take his, uh, a cup of wine to his son and he'd say, here you go, son. The price has been agreed upon. The price has been paid. Take this to your bride. And at that point, you can see a picture here. The boy would take that cup and he would offer it to his bride-to-be. And if she took the cup, she was saying, I will be your bride. Do you know what we're called? I know this is a little strange for men, but we're called the bride of Christ. That he comes and he takes this cup. He has paid the price. He's drank the cup of wrath. He's paid it down. He comes off for us a cup and says, will you take the cup of redemption? I've paid your price. I've redeemed you. Will you trust me? Will you trust that it is finished, that I've paid the price for your sins, and that you can be reconciled to me? And he offers him the cup. As we come to take communion, it's a reminder of a marriage. Anybody who's married knows marriages have their ups and downs. There are points where you are very, very close and intimate, and your points where you maybe don't feel quite as close. Isn't it the same way with God? Isn't it the same way with God? Think about in our marriages, our lack of intimacy often involves sin. And in our relationship with God, our lack of intimacy revolves around sin. See, Jesus has forgiven us. When, if, if you're here today and you've trusted in Jesus for salvation, you've trusted that he's paid the price, then you don't need to come to him asking to be forgiven for salvation reasons. You come and say, 
I confess my sin to you, Jesus, because I want to be in intimate relationship with the bridegroom. That's why he picks that image. It's the most intimate relationship we have. I want to be in close proximity with Jesus. I want to be close to him. Now, if you're here today, I want you to ask yourself some questions. How close do you feel to Jesus? Do you feel like he's near? Do you feel like he's far off? Let me tell you, Jesus has not moved. He's still there, offering us that cup of communion. It's us who have moved. And our sin may be keeping us from experiencing that relationship. So I invite you to spend some time reflecting on the sin in our lives that keeps us from experiencing that authentic, that passion-filled, that real relationship with Jesus. Where we're close with Him. Where we walk with Him. Where when people see us, they see a little Christ because we're so close to Him. Confess those sins that keep you from it and then come and commune with him. Drink the cup. Now what we've got for communion tonight is we've got some matzah bread here. Unleavened bread. In scripture, leaven is a picture of sin. This is a picture of bread without sin. And Jesus says what? This is my body, my sinless body broken for you so when you come to take communion break off a piece of matzah bread and then you can do one of two things whichever you choose you can either take a little cup choose to take a cup and drink from that cup or you can dip your matzah in one of the cups here it's up to you how you want to do that but I want to invite you to a time of reflection a time of confession and a time of entering into deep intimate relationship with Jesus let me pray. God, I, I thank you as we uh, remember the events of the last week of your life. Here on Thursday, as we remember the events of the Last Supper and you're going out to the garden and you're praying and you're drinking that cup, you're saying, I will drink the cup of wrath of the nations, the sin of the world, in order to present my bride to God the Father. I'll pay the bride price. I'll pay it. Lord, now as we come and take communion, may all these pictures that we've talked about tonight be on our mind, but may the thing that we desire most be to close to you, to be intimate with you. So Lord, we confess the sin, our, the things that keep us from you. We confess these in the name of Jesus. Amen.